I welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Current Yield, Grant's Interest Rate Observer podcast. And I am Jim Grant, and with me as always, Eric Whitehead at the control panel, and the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grant's. And joining us today is uh, none other than Jonathan Tepper from uh, across like 3,000 miles of salt water. Jonathan is uh, an alumnus of University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which makes him a Tar Heel, but he is also a Rhodes Scholar. He works in London. He is the uh, founder of Variant Perception, which is a, uh, a global macroeconomic trading and research and uh, thought shop. And uh, he's an alumnus of not only those aforementioned illustrious educational institutions, but also, and perhaps most relevantly, of SAC Capital. And he is with us today in his literary capacity, which is most recently that of the author, along with Denise Hearn, of a book called The Myth of Capitalism. Now, Jonathan, I'm going to try myself out as a, uh, a perception of the dust jacket of this handsome volume. And I'm going to, you tell me whether this is right or wrong. Okay, so the, the title is The Myth of Capitalism, and the subtitle is Monopolies and the Death of Competition. And the picture seems to show the open jaws of a shark between which swims a little minnow. And my guess, Jonathan, is that the minnow constitutes the image, the very image of innovation. Now, is that Absolutely. a correct reading? Spot on. Oh. You got it. Yeah. Well, I would, there's so much to talk about, and we would like to begin by asking you then to kind of briefly and colorfully and um, with reference to our financial lives today, describe the thesis of this book. What do you, what are you telling the public? Absolutely. So the, the thesis of the book is that over the last 40 years, we've seen merger wave after merger wave uh, in every decade. So we've effectively, we've had four. And the U.S. has gone from essentially a very open, uh, competitive economy with a lot of players down to a very few players, and many key industries are now essentially monopolies, duopolies, or oligopolies. And I look at the negative social ramifications of that which is that wages are harmed, uh, productivity is harmed, uh, the uh, startups are harmed, and it clearly corrupts the political process because these companies obviously want to preserve these sort of artificial yeah. moats in well, many cases General, and let, dominate their industries. Let's bring this down to earth and invite you to give us some for instances. For example, uh, Wiley is publishing your book. Wiley is a publisher been around since, I think, the 19th century, an old publisher with especially, among other things, in fine financial titles, and uh, the book is being distributed by none other than Amazon.com. Now, do you approve of the the distribution end of this business? And would you take a cleaver, an antitrust cleaver, to the distributor of your own book, Amazon.com? What do you think? Uh, yes, I would. Um, what's very interesting is that it, it, the publishing industry on the sort of publishing side is really an industry with five players. So you might have, you know, 30, 40 major imprints, but actually there are five companies and there are uh, frequent rumors that they're going to go down to four or even three, and that's likely to happen. And so that's another industry where we have very few players that matter. And then on the purchasing, and distributing wholesale side, as you uh, discussed, you have Amazon that effectively is uh, the reverse of a monopoly. It's a monopsony, meaning that they are the only buyer rather than the only seller. And they're the, they're the real only buyer of books in the U.S. And so they can dictate prices for books to the authors, to the publishers. And uh, to the issue of breaking Amazon up is not just because it's a monopsony and they, they were allowed to buy uh, competitors of online book sales, but rather that Amazon is very much like FedEx in the sense that it's uh, meant to be an open seller of third-party goods. Now, Jonathan, if, 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 I, if I read your fine book correctly, when you become president, which would be difficult 
to be sure, for a man living in, in London, or at least the UK. But when you become president, I'm going to guess, Jonathan Tepper, that your Department of Justice, uh, the antitrust division of your Department of Justice, will eclipse the Department of Defense in size and resources. Such is the agenda that you have laid out in this book. It seems to me that what you want to do is refashion the American economy through the institution of antitrust enforcement. Is that true? Uh, well, I, th I think that it's a fair assessment that I think that antitrust enforcement needs to be much bigger than it is. What's interesting is that the uh, budgets for antitrust have collapsed. Uh, we're basically near the lowest levels ever in terms of real dollars in, in spending. And the FTC and DOJ are basically do-nothing institutions, and 90% of all deals close, and the ones that don't close, uh, close be don't close because of cold feet, not because of the FTC or the DOJ doing anything. So yes, I do think that yeah. if I were president, I would have a robust Department of Justice and FTC, and I would make sure that not only would uh, further mergers be prevented in concentrated industries, I would break up previous ones that uh, should never give be allowed a, to Give happen. us an example of, say, three industries in which there is concentration and three companies that are now one that you would make many. Sure. So, for example, um, Google is the number one that people okay. often talk about when they talk about monopolies. And often it's suggested that Google is in its position because they're just so brilliant technologically. But actually, they were allowed to buy DoubleClick. Uh, DoubleClick uh, was a display ad competitor. Google was the main search advertiser. And there was nothing inevitable about Google essentially dominating uh, online advertising. This is obviously pre-Facebook. Facebook dominates social. But that's one that never went through. You know, I, a friend of mine worked at DoubleClick and was just appalled when that, that, that happened. But you want us to you um, you want us to patronize something called DuckDuckGo. What the heck is DuckDuckGo? Well, I, I do use it. I never use Google. Um, Google is worse than the Stasi in terms of uh, spying on people and registering searches. But DuckDuckGo is essentially a search engine that d does not track you and spy on you. It's uh, ad-based, but not based on tracking you. Yeah. Um, and this, the search results are, are, are pretty good. But there are other industries, too, where mergers should never happen. The U.S. beer market, now 90% of the beer market market is controlled by two companies. There never should have been allowed uh, the merger that created uh, AB InBev, you know, uh, Jonathan, emerging with uh, Anheuser-Busch. Did you Anheuser see the news Bush. on AB InBev today? It is a highly levered company that was run by 3G, and today they slashed their dividend by 50% because essentially they're needing to delever. Um, and if you look over the results for the last couple of years, it's not been an especially profitable duopoly. Like, they, they've had declining volumes almost every year. Are these kind of industry cartels self-defeating, and is the market kind of writing itself? Um, so people often say, well, you know, Sears back in the day was accused of being a a monopoly, therefore, antitrust is uh, unnecessary and ridiculous. Um, I, I think the fact that the industry itself might have declining beer volume. So wine sales are going up, for example, hard liquor sales are going up, um, and, and beer volumes are going down. It's not a reason to allow a duopoly or outright monopoly. Um, Jonathan, know, so I'm gonna, let me, uh, you're in London where beer is warm. We're here in America where beer is cold. But, but when I grew up uh, tasting my father's, uh, wait, wait, so what, am I, what am I admitting to? Okay, fine. I'm not going on the Supreme Court. Here's what I did. When I was not quite 18, we go in the basement and uh, check out once in a while, like on the, I don't know, like my great aunt's birthday, we'd have a, a beer, some of us, my friends and I. And the choice was Rheingold. That was it. Now, that was my father's refrigerator. But the choice in the day was among the uh, the kind of the dish, water tasting, mass produced, you know, Pabst, Budweiser, Miller's. There are half a dozen of them. That was way back when. Now, 
since, I don't know, 15 years ago, there's been a whole revolution in craft breweries. And these things have uh, popped up all over the place and they are nipping at the heels of the likes of Ambev. So I, I wonder if, if we're talking about consumer welfare and consumer choice, whether the beer industry is not the very good example of the almost irrepressible dynamism of enterprise even in the, in the context of a couple of large players. So if you look at it, the top two control 90% of the beer market. So while the um, craft brewers are growing quickly and everyone focuses on them and they make the front covers of you know, magazines yeah, often good. it's exciting and the growth is high, 90% of it is still in the hands of the two yeah, players. Right. Distribution is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, and you know that raises a, another very interesting point, which is the more regulated an industry, generally the more concentrated it is. And it's hard to get your products to market if you're facing state, county uh, regulations regarding the sale of alcohol. Yeah, well, they do get their products to market. Hey, before returning to uh, Jonathan Tepper, the uh, author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition, I want to tell you a little bit about a formidable competitor in the luggage business. That is the Away, Away Travel is the name. And uh, Away uh, uses high quality materials while offering much lower price compared to other brands by cutting out the middleman and selling directly to you. So you can choose from uh, the uh, four different sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, or the large, that's for extended stays. All suitcases are made with premium German polycarbonate, unrivaled in strength and impact resistance, and very lightweight to boot. The interior features a patent-pending compression system helpful for overpackers, who you know who you are. TSA-approved combination lock built into the top of the bag to prevent theft. Removable, washable laundry bag keeps dirty clothes separate from clean. Lifetime warranty. Anything breaks, we will fix it or replace it for you for life. 100-day trial. Live with it, vibe with it, travel with it. If at any point you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund. No questions asked. Free shipping on any away order within the lower 48 states. Carry-on sizes that are compliant with all major U.S. airlines while maximizing the amount you can pack. So it says here to uh, include your personal experience with a product. Well, Eric, I don't think there's any better personal experience than for you to demonstrate the, uh, the, the fabulous timbre or the sound of this thing when you give it a whack. Uh, that's, again, for the West Coast. Excellent. The special offer is as follows. It was unique promo code and unique URL. So here it is. Grant's Pod. G-R-A-N-T-P-O-D. Uh, for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash Grant's Pod and use promo code Grant's Pod during the checkout. That's uh, awaytravel.com slash Grant's Pod. G-R-A-N-T-S-P-O-D and use promo code Grant's Pod during checkout. So uh, that's the call to action. So uh, act, right? Yeah. Okay, so back to Jonathan Tepper. Uh, Ev and I were talking uh, before we went in the air about uh, the possible, another uh, possible source in the suppression of capitalist dynamism, which is a big, I think, a big part of your thesis that uh, we've lost something of the, the vim and vigor of, uh, of the American commercial engine owing to the concentration of ownership. And, Evan, why don't you, because this is your idea that the Fed does not have exactly clean hands in this, no? No, and, and it's something that comes out a couple times in your book. Early on, you discuss a number of academic studies that show that cartels are a lot more likely to form in periods of low rates and they kind of break up in higher rates when uh, there's, you know, a higher cost of capital. And you also say yourself, the way you first came to look into this was when you saw your uh, future wage indicator no longer indicate what was actually happening with wages. It was predicting that wages would increase. And in fact, they flatlined since 2010. You, you discuss what's been happening over four decades in terms of industries concentrating, cartels forming, but it seems like a lot of the bad effects that you're citing really popped up a lot after the Fed went to QE, ZERP, uh, easy monetary policy. To what extent has the Fed kind of exacerbated this and kind of made this possible? And to what extent are the bad effects really kind of the bad effects also of monetary policy? 
Sure. So what's very interesting is the chapter where I, I have the studies on real interest rates and uh, collusion and uh, you know essentially price coordination. It's really uh, sort of counterintuitive or, or not not obvious. You know, people would think that industries uh, collude. You know, maybe to survive tough times. But what what actually drives it is the level of real rates. And if if real rates are high, then the rates of return on collusion need to be very high. And so when you get zero rates, it means that you know you can be relatively patient, have a, a longer term outlook, and industries are much likely to collude. And it's almost one for one in terms of the relationship. So clearly, once you get into sort of you know 0304 with negative real rates, remember that you know even before the QE era, Greenspan left real rates very very low. Um, that certainly helped. But then, you know, for, for many years now, basically, it's the cost of being patient and, and colluding has been quite low. It's not just the cost I of colluding. I mean, it's, to... it's the cost of debt. AT&T is an oligopolist in two industries. Uh, it's in te- uh, mobile telephony, and it's also in broadcast TV. But it would not have gotten its balance sheet today, which is a, a quarter of a trillion dollars in terms of debt and unfunded pension liabilities uh, in the process of acquiring DirecTV and Time Warner, had not debt been so cheap and allowing it to, you know, basically consolidate industries. If, if interest rates were higher, um, this company, which is facing declining earnings, probably wouldn't, you know, be the size it is today. I, I completely agree. I think that, you know, if you have a 30-year bull market in in rate, um, you know, where yields have been coming down since 81, companies that use debt to acquire other companies, you know, can, can do more of it. And uh, I think that that's one of the big reasons why, you know, we, we've seen huge industry consolidation is that the financing of it has been relatively easy. And I think it's very much like, you know, sort of the Street 16, where, you know, every decade we've had a merger wave and you're just knocking out your competitors at each round. And, you know, we're now sort of four rounds in. And, you know, that, that's sort of where we find ourselves. In terms of your um, recommendations at the end of the book for what people should do, you don't actually have one on monetary policy. Uh, should we be advocating for higher real rates in order to, um, I guess, keep capitalism honest? So that, that's actually a very, very good point. Some of the endorsers and, and you know, book reviewers have read it and no one's mentioned that. So it's very astute. Yes, I, I should have put that in. I do think that negative real rate clearly leads to misallocation of capital and clearly favor debt uh, holders. And you know, to the extent that companies lever themselves up to buy competitors, it's been a huge boon. Um, I do think that the world doesn't end because you have positive real rates. If people can't service those, uh, they tend to default and that clears the balance sheets anyway. So I, I really do think very, very low real rates um, are, are problematic and increase uh, collusion and uh, you know, the, the right. purchase of competitors. Well, Jonathan, I'm, I'm going to take this up with President Trump the next time I see him and uh, ask him what he thinks about higher real, real interest rates. Hey, um, I'm going to ask you a question that kind of uh, turns back to the proposition that perhaps there's something cyclical about the antitrust idea. My exhibit, which neither you nor our listeners can actually see, is, is another book. It's called The Antitrust Paradox, and the subtitle is A Policy at War with Itself, and the author is none other than Robert H. Bork, who uh, preceded Judge Kavanaugh as one of the martyrs of our political culture. He was up for the Supreme Court nomination, as you recall. His book is dated uh, 1978, is, is Mr. Bork's book. And in it, uh, he contends that the antitrust uh, laws are capricious, uh, that uh, for practicing capitalism, you are at risk of a Justice Department uh, investigation because the laws are so uncertain. And says Mr. Bork that the purpose, the intended goal, of antitrust is to maximize consumer welfare. Now, I don't think that that is your view, but let me ask you this. So in 1978, that was that 40 years ago, I guess, uh, the thesis of Mr. Bork was that the antitrust laws are too much with us. So fast forward 
all these four decades. And you observe, I think, without anyone contradicting it, that the antitrust laws are asleep. Is it possible there is a cyclicality to this question and that the antitrust laws will awaken just because the cycle's turning? Yes, and, and I, I think that uh, if, if you look at cycles as being multi-decade period, then yes, I completely agree. I think that it, like a big pendulum, it swings from one, uh, one direction uh, to the other. And it, it's certainly a very slow-moving one. But Bork was reacting to essentially the, the, the DOJ and the FTC were not allowing almost any mergers, and you know some mergers that would have involved you know four to five percent market share were not allowed. So I can understand where he was coming from. I think the problem is that you know like any revolution, things get taken too far, and so you know his idea of consumer welfare has essentially meant that now nothing is done about any mergers, no matter how big they are or no matter how few players there are. And then uh, what, what you refer to is the consumer welfare standard, which was that uh, as long as prices are kept low or promised to be kept low, you know, then a merger can be allowed. But there's you know, just reams and reams of evidence showing that mergers lead to higher prices. So highly concentrated industries uh, lead to pricing power. And you can very definitely see that in uh, the medical field, insurance, pharma. Um, you can see that you know, pricing started to rise when the airlines merged. So I would argue the consumer welfare standards failed on its own terms in the sense that prices have risen, but also it's just not, it's not, wasn't even in the Sherman Antitrust Act or the Clayton Act. So uh, Bork, you know, is a brilliant writer. He truly has a gift. But, but, but Jonathan, Jonathan meanwhile, no meanwhile, the, uh, the Fed is, uh, and I think central bankers the world over are trying to raise the rate of inflation and uh, not further diminish it. So uh, I don't know. Hey, I, I wanted to ask you as well, Jonathan, it is taken as a given that uh, these days we live in a time of almost unprecedented creative destruction, uh, disruption, here, there, everywhere. Capitalism would seem to be a very dynamic thing indeed. Is that not your view? Uh, well, my view isn't particularly important. I think what's important is the evidence, and I think the evidence would disagree with the characterization that you had, which is that you know, we've seen a whole-scale collapse in the number of startups in the U.S., and this affects all industries. It affects technology industry as well. We, we've also seen half of all public uh, companies have disappeared effectively since 1997. So you've seen a, a very big decline in IPOs and the number of listed stocks. The word competition itself in annual reports has collapsed over the last 15 years. So the creative destruction sounds great, but when you actually start looking around at the evidence, you find extremely concentrated industries across the board based on, you know, the HHI index. And so it's just like, it's not one piece of evidence, it's all of it. I think we agree with you. you. Uh, Jonathan, so the question we have for us, your book is a great call to action for what we should do as, um, as citizens, as consumers, and as people who care about, you know, the economy functioning well. Um, but one other question we have is what should we do as investors? When we had you on earlier this year with uh, John Hempton, you said that the, the data shows that concentrated industries, uh, duopolies, monopolies, and words that I can't say, have just done the best in the stock market. But lately, we've kind of seen a breakdown in that. Today was AB NBEV, but like the tech leaders like Facebook and Google have also broken down recently. So what should we as investors take away from your book and how should we approach the market? Sure. So I, I think that uh, the, the paper that we talked about earlier this year when I was on with my very good friend, John Hempton, who I love dearly, um, we were you know, talking about the past performance. And I do think that if there are natural moats or reasons why an industry might support few players, I think those industries might do well going forward, right? So for example, 
uh, Boeing or Airbus might come to mind in the sense that, you know, it's just pretty difficult for uh, new startups to come in and compete with these. So the technology dictates the size of the plant and the firm. But there are many industries that have essentially have artificial moats, meaning that they've used regulation to try to keep out new entrants. And I think some of these are going to be attacked. Uh, you know, you, you were talking about the pendulum earlier, you know, or the cycle. I think the cycle will turn. And so the the returns that you've seen over the last 10 to 15 years are likely not going to be seen going forward. You know, if you remember the great book on spinoffs, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius by uh, Greenblatt came out and everyone's like, well, spinoffs have done amazing for the last 20 years. And then when everyone started focusing on spinoffs, they've actually done very poorly going forward. And, and my, my guess is that a lot of these have been bid up, priced out, and furthermore, you're then going to get the reaction against them. And so I do think that the fangs are probably going to be broken up. There's a tremendous groundswell uh, for that. I suspect that they're not going to be the amazing investments that they have been over the last 10 years. I think you have to be judicious in, in which ones that they are. And then also, you know, is it a natural one that's dictated by the technology or the industry, or is it not? And, and that's the real question I think that investment analysts have to ask, you know, putting aside all these other social considerations about the ills of concentration in terms of wages, productivity, and all that. Hey, Jonathan, uh, in this country, at least, uh, buybacks are a very big feature of the stock market, and I dare say a very big a bid in the stock market. And uh, your conclusion where you're spelling out uh, courses of action that we must or should all follow to uh, beat back this tide of uh, concentration and cartelization. You say uh, that companies ought not to be allowed to buy back shares if their pension plans are underfunded, which seems like a very sensible idea. But can you give us a sense of what percentage of buybacks we disallowed if this idea were implemented? So I, I don't have the exact percentage. It's not negligible. You know, it, you're dealing in the sort of you know high dozens of billions of dollars that, that I've been able to find. Um, I, I haven't seen a comprehensive study that looks at all of it. The, the big issue with buybacks is I'm not against them per se. Um, I think that buybacks are a symptom. Uh, they're, they're not the disease. And the symptom is essentially that some companies have abnormally high profits due to lack of competition. Then they are sitting on this cash and have to do something with it, and they do the buybacks. And I, I think that it, quite often they've been used essentially to enrich uh, insiders because they're buying the shares in the open market to prop it up while the insiders sell theirs. You know, And so that's which, quite which companies are the most flagrant violators? Well, I mean, so for example, right now, just look at GE, right? Uh, I mean, look at what they've done over the last 10 to 15 years and look at their pension plan, right? They are the sort of poster boy for flagrant abuse of buyback, engaging in, in debt and underfunding pension plan. Uh, there, there are other companies uh, as well. Some of the defense company stock have done that. So, so clearly... In some of these cases, defense stocks, I point out in the book, I've got a chart there. There were 105 defense companies when Bill Clinton came into office. Today, there are five. And most of these actually have zero competition because, you know, they produce a particular line of weapons and there's no other company competing with them in that. So, uh, it, again, it's a symptom, not the disease. But then they're able to, you know, take the, the sort of profits from Uncle Sam, buy back their shares while insiders sell in the open market and underfund the pension plans. Jonathan, does your um, analysis of monopoly and capitalism spill over perhaps into a, a line of argument or reasoning in politics? I'm thinking, for example, of uh, something I read in The Spectator, uh, British Weekly, and Charles Moore, who writes a column in The Spectator, observed that in Scotland, there is one police force 
And uh, according to Charles Moore, this one police force is rather overbearing. It has no regional competition or local competition. There's one arm of the law, and it is heavy. Uh, and one might observe that in Europe, where there used to be many separate sovereignties, there is now a supra-sovereignty called the European Union. What do you think of all that? Well, I think that competition in general is a good thing. Um, I, I can see why some public services are, are, are centralized. But just think about the U.S. political process. If you don't like, you know, as a matter of principle, monopolies and uh, duopolies in industry, we have essentially a duopoly in the party system. And just as you end up with collusion in pricing when it comes to uh, duopolies and oligopolies, you end up with collusion in policy. So while they might complain about different things, in fact, both parties behave very similarly when it comes to the issue of industrial concentration. And they behave very similarly when it comes to the revolving door and lobbying and crony capitalism. So I do think that the absence of competition effectively leads to worse outcomes overall. Well, in, in this country where Jonathan Tepper used to live before he became a Rhodes Scholar and resettled in London before all that, there used to be in this country something called states' rights. And Evan, you, you know what happened to states' rights? Did the Supreme Court void them? The feds got the A-bomb. <laughs> well, we have been talking with the author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. And he is Jonathan Tepper. We have not talked with his co-author, Denise Hearn, but we wish her as well, well as well. And uh, Jonathan, it has been great fun talking with you and most enlightening as well. So thank you for joining us across the Atlantic, where it must be, what, three in the morning there? I mean, thanks for staying. No, no, no. It's uh, eight at night. But uh, thank you so much. Absolute uh, pleasure and uh, enormously uh, grateful. I always enjoy Grant. Terrific. Talk to you soon, Jonathan. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. 